0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Back to the Bible Today we wrap up our three week series Life lessons from David The man who would be king With a final message called Remaining humble when God gives you all you want Before we get into today's study A reminder that our Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld, Will be the main speaker at the Kingston Keswick Convention To be held at the Boulevard Baptist Church from Sunday, January 21, through to Sunday, January 28. Services commence at 7 o'clock each evening. Now let's get back to the Bible, as we invite you to join us, if you can, in 1 Samuel, chapter 31, as we join Bible teacher John Newfeld with today's study.
1: I must confess that there are several chapters in the Bible that I find very difficult to read. 1 Samuel 31 is one of these. I find it difficult to work my way through the portrayal of the absolute defeat of the people of God and the utter triumph of a pagan people. From the outset, the Philistines have been proclaiming that Dagon, their God, is superior to the God of the Israelites, and at first glance, 1 Samuel 31, if it were read by itself, would surely give that impression. But set against the background of this difficult chapter, there will arise a valiant king who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. A king will burst forward onto the scene and conquer the foes of God, so much so that the kings of the world would tremble before him. But that day is yet in the future. Well, let's consider 1 Samuel 31 on its own. I'm reading the first six verses of the chapter. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day. Now before we investigate the implications of what this means, let's see if we can envision the scene. The Philistine battle line would have been north of Israel. They advanced moving south along the plains of the valley of Jezreel. If they had chariots, which is likely, they would have used them to great effect on the level ground that made up the battlefield. According to the text we have just read, the men of Israel fled before the Philistine advance, the Israelite lines would have been breached, and once they were unable to hold their positions, they were in full retreat, each man running, hoping to make a stand on the slopes of Mount Gilboa, but many of them would have been cut down and killed on the plain. Once the Philistines got to Mount Gilboa, the archers would have stepped forward and rained death down on the Israelite troops. In the heat of the battle, we can imagine Jonathan rallying troops to form some kind of a counter surge, but the chaotic scene was too much. Jonathan and two of his brothers are struck down and die in the defense of the people of God. With the sons of Saul now dead, the battle lines not clearly formed and arrows raining down on any Israelite position that attempted to be formed and make a stand, Saul himself is struck by an arrow. He's badly wounded. Realizing that the Philistines will soon be upon him, he asks his armor bearer to kill him. From what we know about the customs of the Near Eastern warfare, it was a common practice to torture an enemy soldier on the battlefield, which might include mutilation, even the cutting off of genitalia, and eventually ending up in decapitation. It was utterly inhumane, it was brutal, and it was lacking in any sense of compassion. Saul is right in wanting to deny the Philistines this sadistic pleasure, and he rightly fears such torture, so he demands that his armor-bearer kill him, but the man, we're told, fears greatly and won't do it. And so Saul falls on his own sword, killing himself. Not a few Bible teachers have made much of Saul's suicide, but I think this is not the place to discuss suicide. What I do think is of note is that the inspired writer mentions no prayer of Saul, no final repentant heart, nor any concluding thoughts. I suspect that the chaos was so great, there simply was no time. But since we who are reading this text have some time, we might want to reflect upon Saul's death here. In Psalm 59, 1-2, when Saul had sent men to David's house in order to kill him, when he came out, David recorded his prayer at just such a moment. Here's what he prayed. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. And then later in the same prayer, and I'm reading from verse 9, David would pray, O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. But Saul has distanced himself from his God. And for him, there is no such prayer at the end. He simply falls on his sword. But as we know, death is no fortress of safety for those who live without God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Death will be no fortress from the day of trouble, only God is. David knew that, but Saul did not. Having run from the victorious armies of the Philistines, he rushed headlong into death without repentance, without grace, and without a covenant of mercy. Saul's end is no reason for rejoicing. When David heard of it in 2 Samuel 1 verse 11, it says there, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. See, the death of the wicked vindicates the word of the Lord, but it brings no joy for the godly. Now I'm going to return to that theme at the end of today's message. Meanwhile, let's follow the events of the battle through. After Saul has fallen and the army of Israel has fled, and seemingly all successors to Saul had also been slaughtered in the battle, all Israel simply abandoned their towns and the region, becoming instant refugees fleeing for their lives. By the next day, the Philistines came and occupied the towns of Issachar and Manasseh, and their victorious armies looted and abandoned Israelite homes and stripped corpses on the battlefield. They found Saul's dead body and cut off his head, but they did more. Please listen to 1 Samuel 31, verse 9. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Here now we see the effects of the battle. Everywhere the Philistines went after this battle, they proclaimed the gospel, the good news of the house of their idols. They openly trumpeted that Dagon, the god of the Philistines, is greater than Yahweh of Israel. And they thought that they have proved it, not only by this great victory and the spoils, but also because they now control the major trade route, it was called the Via Maris, and thus all the economy through that region had now to flow through their hands. What happens here has been called a national disaster of monumental proportions. Yes, it is not as large as the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians, but this event surely comes in second after that one. Israel's king has been slaughtered, her mighty men lie dead on the battlefield, and her ability to direct her own economy was ruined. And all this was done while Philistia was pronouncing the gospel of their God Dagon. Now before we process what that actually means and how to apply it to our world today, one more thing needs to be added. Let's read the last several verses of 1 Samuel 31. They put his, that is Saul's armor, in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night, and took the body of Saul, and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took up their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and fasted seven days." You know, Jabesh Gilead was a city with walls, and so they were unwilling to surrender their city to the Philistines. They would have strengthened their fortifications and remained. And then in an act of valor, after hearing of the mistreatment of the bodies of Saul and of the royal family, they made a risky journey through the night. Beth-shan would have been some 25 kilometers from their city, and furthermore, they had to ford the Jordan River to get there, but they removed the bodies of the royal family in order to lay them to rest with some kind of dignity. And the reason is fascinating. Forty years earlier, when Nahash, the Ammonite, had besieged their city and threatened to remove the right eye of every one of their men, Saul, in one of his finest moments as a king, defended them and drove out the Ammonites. And these men, the men of Jabesh Gilead, never forgot. In spite of all the errors and sins of Saul, they showed their gratitude to what he had done. And like many who love it when a leader falls because of his own sin... These men will have none of that. They will honor him in the end. And so a period of time in Israel's history is played out when it would seem like the enemies of the God of Israel had won and that Israel has been humiliated and disgraced in a way that she could hardly lift up her head. And when we come back, we'll try to understand the question of why it is that God allows such things to occur and why in the midst of such things we can still have hope and assurance that our God is in control and that He remains victorious.
0: Back to the Bible Jamaica, in partnership with Jamaica's National Leadership Prayer Breakfast Committee, invites you to join us as we continue in the National Leadership Week of Prayer which continues through to next Thursday, January 18, under the theme Choose Hope, Arise and Build. Today we ask that you pray for our families and community leaders. Let us give thanks for fathers, mothers and caregivers who love, care and protect each other and their children. For community leaders who look out for the vulnerable and needy and serve as peacemakers in communities. Let us pray that God will continue to inspire, equip and empower our family and community leaders to bring out the best in our citizens. For tomorrow, Saturday, January 13, we ask that you pray for our public sector leaders. Let us give thanks for those who daily avail themselves for the business and welfare of Jamaica, land we love. Let us pray for those who manage the resources of the nation on our behalf, especially during these challenging economic times. Pray for wisdom, knowledge, integrity, and the skills necessary to improve national well-being. And let us pray for rejuvenation of health, education, and security teams who may be weary or are experiencing burnout. And then, for Sunday, January 14, we ask that you pray for our leaders in education. Let us give thanks for all of the leaders and those who lead. Let us pray that God will enable them to equip the students to become peaceful innovative and productive citizens of good character, so that they will in turn play their part in building a better Jamaica. And may we pray that there will be adequate supply of personnel, resources and the resolve they need. Let us all pray, as individuals, as families, as groups, as congregations, as communities and as a nation, each day for all our leaders, in every sector and at every level that god will use them to build a godly and great nation if you would like to be reminded of these prayer points they can be found in our mobile app bttb jamaica or you may request them by sending a whatsapp message to 8763376295 that's 8763376295 just text the words prayer schedule now as we prepare to get back to the bible let's rejoin bible teacher john newfeld as he helps us to understand more about why god allowed the defeat of his people
1: If you go to North Africa today, you go to country after country that once was an important seat of the Christian church. Lands where the gospel had once been proclaimed now are all under Muslim hands. Simon of Serene, who carried Christ's cross and then was purported to have been converted, came from North Africa. The Ethiopian eunuch came from there. The spread of the faith in that part of the world for the first five centuries was rapid and intense. Alexandria of Egypt was a great Christian center. Even though our Bible records the journeys of Paul in Europe, North Africans were among the very first people to receive and openly embrace the gospel. With Muslim invasions, many Christians fled to Europe and many Christians died, and many apostatized to Islam in order to survive. It's a history I find difficult. Or consider the Holocaust of the Armenian Christians in Turkey that all but eclipsed Christianity in that country. Christians are sometimes left to ponder why God should allow such a thing. And yet even while I don't pretend to answer this question, I am reminded of other biblical occasions of defeat. I'm reminded of the fall of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians, the utter destruction of the temple, and the removal of the entire population of Israel from their land. And yet as horrible as that may seem, Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, verse 23 to 25, says that even in those horrible events, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And of course, we know that God would not allow Israel to live in rampant idolatry, but that he would punish them. And more, we also know that the destruction of Jerusalem was not the end. In the book of Daniel, Israel learned a lesson they could never have learned if they had not been driven out of the promised land. They learned that Yahweh was God not just over Israel and Jerusalem. He was God over Babylon. Indeed, he was God over the whole world. In the end, even the king of Babylon himself had to admit that Daniel's God was king over all, and that, as is recorded in Daniel 4, verse 3, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. It's because of the Babylonian captivity that Israel finally and ultimately put aside their idolatry and recognized something they had never seen before. There is but one God, and Yahweh of Israel rules all the nations. If the destruction of Jerusalem had not happened, they would never have seen this. You The know, same is true for another national disaster. 2,000 years ago, the Son of David and the Son of God rode into Jerusalem only to be nailed to a cross, be bitterly abused, and killed and laid into a tomb. But it's only because of that that the gospel has broken the bonds of Judaism and is heard in the whole world, resulting in the conversion and salvation and eternal destiny of countless millions of people. Had Jesus not been so thoroughly crushed, the gospel would never have been heard. And that takes us back to the fateful battle at the slopes of Mount Gilboa, where Saul and his three sons died. Israel looks hopelessly defeated, and Philistia is proclaiming the gospel of Dagon everywhere. The faithful in Israel hang their heads in shame and wonder how it is that God could have allowed such a thing. Well, the first reason he did is because God will not tolerate idolatry even among his own people. False gods, blatant disobedience, and a going of our own way is not overlooked by God. Saul, if he refused to look to God, would be defeated by the Philistines. You know, the same can be said of us. Individual Christians and the church as a whole, if we deny the word, if our gods become money, pleasure, pride, acceptability in the eyes of the world, God will not bless us. He will allow us to be defeated by our enemies. God is holy, and he will not be mocked even by his own people. You know, the second reason why God would allow such a thing is because God was preparing his man, David, to step onto the throne. As 1 Samuel ends in absolute collapse, so 2 Samuel begins with the words, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. As 2 Samuel begins to play out, David moves from the Philistine city of Ziglag to the Judean city of Hebron. And for seven years he seems to hobble along and half of Israel proclaims him as king and the other half proclaims Saul's remaining son Ishbosheth as king. But eventually David becomes the sole king of all Israel. After defeating the Jebusites in Jerusalem and claiming that city as the capital of Israel, David does the next great thing. He engages Philistia in such a warfare that in 2 Samuel we read that he so utterly defeats the Philistines that they never rise as a nation again. Furthermore, as Second Samuel 7 tells us, the time came in David's reign that God gave him rest from all his surrounding enemies. He essentially defeats Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Syria to the north, and lays down the foundations of a secure kingdom which will lead to an era of peace. Had it not been for the utter defeat of Saul, David would never have come to the kingdom. You know, sometimes in moments that seem to be the greatest defeat in our personal lives, God uses the place of utter defeat to build on the ruins of that place the foundations of his kingdom, such as the tomb where Jesus was laid. In that place that received the dead, defeated, broken body of our Savior, in that very place has come the earth's greatest triumph since this has been a series about the man who would be king and a series of what it means to live lives of significance, we've learned several things. David never scratched and clawed his way to significance, much like a corporate executive might or an athlete might fight his or her way to recognition. David contented himself in God's call in his life. We also noticed that David, the man who would become one of the greatest men who ever lived, was not perfect, not by a long shot. But he was humble and willing to repent and willing to learn the lessons of faith. He was learning to trust God, even when things don't make sense. But before we leave our study of David, we will do well to learn one more life lesson from David. Saul, the man who saw David's life, was dead. And with Saul's death came the opportunity to claim the throne of Israel. And all of this was from God. It would have been so easy for David to gloat over his defeated enemy, King Saul but he does not. I want to end with David's Song of Lament, which he wrote following the news that Saul had died in battle. Indeed, the Bible says that he not only composed this lament, but he taught the lament to the people of Judah, whom he ruled shortly after Saul's death. The lament begins this way. Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath." Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You know, Gath and Ashkelon were principal cities among the Philistines, and David couldn't even begin to countenance that someone in Israel might rejoice over the death of Saul, and that the Philistines might find a reason for joy. When a man appointed by God has fallen, even because of his own sin, David would not allow anyone to feel some sense of delight. And that is the final life lesson we learn from the man who had become the greatest king of Israel outside of Jesus. When God gave him everything he wanted, he remained humble and defended the king of Israel who tried to have him slain. No one lives a life of significance until they deeply drink from the well of humility and defend the people of God when everyone else would slander them. Yes, God had vindicated David in the end, but he would not mock those who sought his undoing. Men and women of significance, men and women of God, are that way. For when they receive from God all they ever wanted, they remember that this came only because God was gracious And not because they were morally superior. They remember that it is God who removes kings and lifts men to become kings. It is God who does all things for his glory. And when in glorifying himself, God also condescends to show mercy to us, allowing us to live lives of significance. All we can do is to remain humble and bow our knee to him who is the only true king and redound all praise and glory
0: to him. Dr. John, a great conclusion to a great series on the life of David. One of the things you talked about today is that sense, though, of uh, gloating when uh, those people that are against you, in essence, fall. What ought we to be doing for those people?
1: Yeah, I know it does sometimes happen that individuals who leading lives or maybe have ministries that we think are disreputable or are teaching things that are not accurate according to scripture and then we find that they do fall in which they do and that uh, you know especially we've had this situation with televangelists and the like who have kind of ended a you know just in great ruin and then we find up gloating and we you know we tweet and twitter and do everything else and just to join the world in mockery I think David's life teaches us not to do that. Tell it not in Gath Declare it not in the streets of Ashkelon Let's uh, let's humbly bow our heads and pray for those who have fallen and ask God to restore them But but let's not become gloaters along with the rest of the world. I think that's the lesson to learn
0: Thanks for joining us today here on Back to the Bible, brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast Jamaica, in partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. We can be contacted via email at backtothebibleministry at gmail com. Our office number is eight seven six nine two six five seven six five. And our cell and WhatsApp number is 876-337-6295. To listen to this study again, or some of our previous studies, they are available in our free mobile app, along with other Bible engagement material. Just look for BTTB Jamaica in your app store. That's BTTB Jamaica. A reminder that we still have copies of our 2024 calendar available in Mandeville at Forever Young in the Manchester Shopping Center and here in Kingston at Source of Light Bookstore and of course our office, both located in Hagley Park Plaza. Calendars are available for your contribution of $700 each as the funds go towards supporting the ministry. Well, the weekend is here, and, as always, we encourage you to be in church, fellowshipping with believers and studying God's Word. And be sure to join us next week as Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld begins a new series focusing on the Gospel of Luke, chapters 2 through to 6. That's next week, right here on Back to the Bible, Jamaica, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.